Welcome to Our Opinions Are Correct, a podcast about the social meaning of science fiction. I'm Charlie Jane Anders, a science fiction writer who thinks rather a lot about science. And I'm Annalie Newitz, a science journalist who writes science fiction. Today, we're going to be talking about rugged individualism, which is something that's really helped to shape the history of science fiction, especially in the United States, and has really kind of shaped how we think about technology as a whole. So get ready to strike out on your own. So, Charlie Jane, where does this idea of individualism get started in the United States? I mean, it didn't just come out of nowhere. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a bunch of different components to it that kind of fell into place mostly in the 19th century. I mean, it was the concepts were around before that, but I think that the idea of like the individual at odds with society wanting to go off and strike out and go explore a strange new world on your own and have like a hero's journey and like all that stuff. That really starts in the 19th century. And I think that there's a bunch of things that happen in the 19th century that carry through into this kind of like archetypal kind of heroic protagonist, single person kind of science fiction story. There's like the rise of privacy as an idea. Like the idea of privacy is really kind of takes on a new life, let's just say, in the 19th century. People stop all just sleeping in the same bed, like at some point. The invention of the private bed and the invention of like the private bedroom and like having like your own space is a thing. And also I think throughout the 19th century, there were a lot of legal analysts who kind of talked about like the idea of privacy and whether there was a legal right to privacy. That was something that really started to be talked about. We had the Fourth Amendment to the United States Constitution before that, but it mostly – the actual text of it mostly just talks about you know search and seizure and kind of surveillance. But it was kind of generalized out to a constitutional right to privacy at some point. During and the also 19th century. the idea that privacy was something that we should value, you know, right. that it was not just sort of like occasionally you would be in private. It was that you would want to be in private or that this was something that we should protect. Yeah, I think that I was reading up on this before we started recording and like there were a lot of things that said that prior to the 19th century, the idea of privacy was sort of viewed kind of as like isolation, as losing something, as having things, something taken away from you versus like gaining a valuable thing. And, you know, I was also reading up about like Grover Cleveland's wife, uh, Frances Cleveland, who was like incredibly young and beautiful. He basically just like waited for her to be old enough so he could marry her. 19th century president. I know. God. (laughs) And she was like the first celebrity in a lot of ways. And like she had actual paparazzi following her. A photographer tried to bribe Frances Scott Key to like be snuck into her wedding disguised as like a band member. And like people were like kind of basically stalking her a lot and her face was being used on advertisements and it was the first legal case about like can you use someone's face in an advertising thing without their permission and that was the first time that this was an issue and I think that the case of Francis Cleveland really kind of helped people to start thinking about like the right to be left alone and the right to have a private 
world. And then meanwhile, the other thing that happened in the 19th century is this idea of the frontier. And obviously, the Europeans had been spreading out across the United States and colonizing and settling and displacing the indigenous people who were already there. But it, in the late 19th century with like this historian, Frederick Jackson Turner, wrote a thing in 1893 about the frontier where he said that it was this individualistic, iconoclastic thing where people were kind of rejecting institutions and kind of going off and being heroic individuals. And that became a huge meme. And James Fenimore Cooper started writing these Westerns that were like ridiculously popular. And there was this whole- Such as The Last of the Mohicans, yeah. which was a movie not that long ago that I was know. celebrating the rugged individual white man. And, you know, it's interesting to think of how individualism is tied to these two really different things, the idea of privacy and the idea of the frontier. You know, it's they're really quite different. And I, I just want to, before you go on, I want to throw in a plug for the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin, which in the United States, we often talk about that as kind of the origin of our obsession with individualism, because in his autobiography, he talks about how when he was basically a teenager, he left home and went pretty far away to a different city, to Philadelphia, to make his own way in the world. And this was looked at as being a radical break from tradition where people would live with their families, you know, maybe for their whole lives. You know, you'd have an extended family and everyone lived together. And the idea that you would leave home to find your fortune and find yourself was in some ways even considered kind of barbaric. You know, why would you do that? Like that's that's you'd abandon your family and 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 go do that. And he was kind of arguing, no, in America, this is how we do it. We we depend on ourselves. We're individuals. We don't have to stay with our families. And so he becomes kind of this archetype of, yeah. of self, the self-made man kind of comes out of that. And then I think that ends up kind of feeding into all of these other kinds of problems. But he's kind of – he's the first starship captain in a weird way. Ah. And that makes me think of Thoreau who like there's been a lot of discourse lately about how Thoreau like wrote this book about going to live by himself in the woods. But his Walden. mom was – Yeah, his mom was bringing him lunch every day and like doing his laundry for him. And he was, he was having dinner with Imran. Emerson every night and apparently like having sex with Emerson's wife maybe. I have to say I used to think that Henry David Thoreau was pretty rad and now I think he's kind of a douche. I think I'm, he was I'm just thoroughly little, awful. I'm feeling <laughs> – I'm feeling a little less Thoreauvian these days. <laughs> yeah. So we have a couple of clips for you that kind of sum up this kind of frontier, you know, rugged thing. This is John Wayne from the movie Hondo. Man ought to do what he thinks is best. And that's the closest John Wayne ever actually came to saying the phrase that he's supposed to have said, a man's got to do what a man's got to do. And then here is some years later, here is Clint Eastwood as Dirty Harry. Man's got to know his limitations. And I just love that, like, man's got to know his limitations. You know, it's just like, you know, it's rugged because there's no article. They don't say a man has to know his limitations or a man's got it just like, man, man's got to do Man got to do what he thinks best. Yeah, and I think that, you know, certainly John Wayne's, all of the characters that he's played and his kind of brand, if you will, uh, is heavily associated with that frontier mentality. And then Dirty Harry, he's a new character that Clint Eastwood is playing, but people would have known Eastwood from his spaghetti western days. And so it's still kind of in that rugged individualist tradition. So, again— to bring it back to science fiction, these are the kinds of characters that we start to see all the time in science fiction. Which For is, sure. You know, 
And then there's one other area of individualism that we haven't talked about yet, which is how libertarian thought gets tied up with science fiction. So why don't you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously one of the most influential science fiction writers of all time is Ayn Rand, who created this whole libertarian ethos of if you accept any help from the government, you're a moocher. And there are men of genius, and I guess women of genius as well maybe, who are just industrious and brilliant and should be going off on their own to like their own kind of John Galt paradise away from everybody else and should be left alone to just create because all society can do is get in their way and kind of mess with them. And she was part of this whole libertarian intellectual tradition going back to John Locke and Adam Smith and, you know, von Mises and Hayek. And in the 20th century, there was Robert Nozick, this heavily influential Harvard professor who really, he constructed these elaborate thought experiments about the individual and why the individual would be better left alone by society. And, you know, and it's interesting because his rivalry with John Rawls, who was his kind of great, you know, intellectual counterpart on the left, John Rawls constructed these elaborate thought experiments to show why we should have redistribution in an equitable society. But John Rawls's thought experiments are also profoundly individualistic if you think about them. They're all about like if you did not know whether you were going to be born rich or poor – what kind of society would you construct knowing that there's a chance that you will be born as the poorest person? And that's profoundly an individualistic conception. It's not saying you should try to imagine the lives of other people or you should try to have compassion for everybody around you. It's like, no, from a strictly kind of game theory perspective, you as an individual are playing a game where you might be poor and what kind of society do you want to construct so that in that instance you have the best – you as an individual have the best Right. Experience. It's appealing – in a sense, it's appealing to self-interest. It's right. saying not, oh, maybe what you should do is worry about all of society and worry about your neighbors and worry about your neighbor's kids. It's saying, well, what – if you were the poor one. So, yeah, it's it's interesting that you see it that way. I think that's really true that yeah. it's – we never kind of get to the point of some great thinker who's saying like, well, but perhaps like we should try to sympathize with people different from us. Yeah. You know, it's, the only way you can possibly frame it is – you know, imagine that you're the one that's imperiled. You have these 20th century thought experiments, which I think were hugely influential on science fiction, which are different kind of flavors of individualism. And then why don't you tell us about Freud? <laughs> I like how you're like, and then Freud. I think what you're getting at is just sort of how the field of psychology influenced science fiction and how that kind of falls into all of these other tropes about the individual. And I think Sigmund Freud was a great influence on literature in general, and he came up with a lot of scientific theories, which now we don't think of as being quite as scientific anymore, about how consciousness works. And of course, for him, what was interesting was individual consciousness, and he really wanted to look at how a mind worked a little bit independent of its society. I mean, he was certainly... I mean, I'm kind of a fan of Freud, <laughs> so <laughs> I might sound a bit like I'm defending him here because, you know, there's many, many problems with his work and I don't think you would want to use Freud to actually try to help somebody who is mentally ill. But I think as someone thinking about sort of how society works and how narrative works and things like that, I think he's really cool. And what he imagines is that everyone's consciousness is kind of a microcosm of society. And that you have a part of your consciousness that reflects 
kind of the values and the morals of your parents and authority figures around you. And you have a part of your personality that kind of reflects just like the raw wants and needs of a baby or an animal, you know, like give me food, give me sex, give me shelter, give me the pleasurable thing that I want again and again and again, (laughs) Um, which I fully relate to, especially if I'm like eating Cadbury mini eggs. And your consciousness is constantly in this churn of trying to balance out these raw desires and these strictures that you've internalized from the world around you. And so that's what creates neurosis is that you're constantly trapped between these two extremes. And I think, A, that makes for really interesting character building in literature because it allows you to think about, you know, how do real people's minds work? Because often we are really trapped between those things. And also – Writers picked up on that and it allowed people to, I think, sometimes incorrectly imagine that people's mental anguish didn't have a lot to do with things that had really happened to them. And because they would sort of say, well, but maybe somebody's brain is just kind of stuck the way Freud imagined, like they're stuck at a certain stage in development. Freud was really into that idea. And it's not that this person was, say, raped by their father. Or it's not that this person was put into a death camp. It's really just that they have some kind of basic psychological problem that probably has something to do with not being able to balance out their raw desire to have sex with, you know, their need to kind of conform to social norms. And I'm really boiling it down because (laughs) Freud changes his mind a lot throughout his career, too. And like so this is kind of I'm sort of talking a little bit about old Freud and a little bit about later Freud. So to sum up, I would say – That what Freud kind of encouraged us to do was look at human psychology a little bit divorced from its social context and also to think about the human mind as being its own kind of frontier. And I think that that's really interesting. And later in the 20th century, we have a lot of different theorists who are taking up Freudian ideas and trying to extend them and politicize them and think about them in a more social way. And Michel Foucault, uh, the French theorist, has done this in a lot of his work, although he deals with a lot of other different philosophical traditions as well. And I think the thing that's great about Foucault, who's another problematic figure that I'm kind of a fan of, is that he looks at the idea of the individual in historical context. And he's really one of the first people in philosophy to come forward and say, like, look, this idea of the individual that we're totally obsessed with in Western philosophy is actually a complete invention. It's an invention of the 19th century. He traces it back to an obsession with privacy to a certain extent and also to a kind of new focus, which he sees as coming partly from Christianity but also from science on our relationship to ourselves and how suddenly in the 19th century we start thinking about self-betterment and about the kind of minute things that we do every day and how we can optimize them and make them better. And I think, you know, Foucault is even more relevant today because of we have so much of this self-help culture that we're focused on. There's so much quantified self. Gia Tolentino's new book of essays called Trick Mirror deals with this a little bit. She talks about the obsession with optimization, self-optimization, because it's really about that idea that the most important relationship you have is with yourself and like how you can make yourself better. I feel like I'm just dangling on Foucault's pendulum now. So we're going to take a little break now and then we're going to talk about how rugged individualism has shaped science fiction.
finally, how do these cowboy narratives, we kind of talked about this a tiny bit, but how does this John Wayne, Clint Eastwood cowboy narrative kind of cross over into science fiction? Well, I think we did sort of talk about the way that the Western has influenced science fiction a lot. And I think especially in, you know, mid-20th century science fiction, golden age science fiction, a lot of the main characters are rugged individuals. They're people who are exploring the space frontier, as we say in Star Trek, (laughs) the final frontier. And we have a clip of that. Space, the final frontier. And so I think that if we can kind of reverse engineer what that means, going back to what we were just talking about, if we think of space as the final frontier and then we think about all these things that the individual means from kind of a libertarian point of view, from a Foucauldian point of view, from the point of view of privacy, that allows us to unpack a lot of science fiction tropes that are both kind of problematic and also a little mysterious. Like, why did they end up in there? You know, why why are we talking about these issues in science fiction? So what do you think are some good examples of science fiction that's kind of playing with this frontier myth and kind of also at the same time bringing in like, say, libertarianism or like weird obsessions with privacy. I mean, you have like the classic heroes like John Carter and Conan from like Edgar Rice Burroughs and and so on and so forth who are kind of out there on their own in the wasteland or on Mars or whatever. And then you have Star Trek where it's about the crew of a starship and they're allegedly all working together and it's all collective effort. But somehow in every episode, Captain Kirk ends up going off on his own. And the show goes to great lengths to get Captain Kirk away from the rest of his crew so that he can go have an adventure on his own in every episode, pretty much. Like even if he beams down with a group of other people, he's separated from them pretty quickly because we want to see Captain Kirk kind of confronting things on his own. You have the superhero stories which start in the 30s and become really huge in the 60s where there's often like a lone hero who's really misunderstood, who's really like Spider-Man, everybody's writing newspaper editorials about him, or who's kind of above everybody else, like Superman, where everybody just sort of looks up to Superman. And those are kind of the two modes for superheroes. They're either despised outcasts or they're exalted kind of on a pedestal. And then, you know, the spy-fi genre like James Bond, where it's often very larger than life and sensationalistic, and there's often like gadgets and doomsday devices that kind of push it over into being science fiction. And again, he has an organization behind him, but somehow it's always just him on his own. And he's always kind of coping with these giant threats without any help from anybody usually. And there's actually a quote that I wanted to read a tiny bit of from Michael Moorcock, where he says, the bandit hero, the underdog rebel, so frequently becomes the political tyrant, and we are perpetually astonished. Such figures appeal to our infantile selves. What is harmful about them in real life is that they are usually immature without self-discipline, frequently surviving on their charm, in quotes. Fiction lets them stay, like Zorro or Robin Hood, perpetually charming. And he kind of talks about John W. Campbell, who took over astounding science fiction stories and created the golden age of science fiction with writers like Heinlein, Asimov, and A. Van Vogt, who were wild-eyed paternalists, fierce antisocialists, whose work reflected the deep-seated conservatism of the majority of their readers. They were xenophobic, smug, and confident that the capitalist system would flourish throughout the universe. And he says rugged individualism was the most sophisticated political concept that they could manage. In the pulp tradition, the code of the West became the code of the space frontier, and a spaceship captain had to do what a spaceship captain had to do. Right. 
part of this frontier myth or this rugged individualist myth is to take that individual out of their context, partly to show how strong they are, but also to prevent us from seeing what Moorcock is talking about, seeing that this person is basically some kind of authoritarian. Mm -hmm. And so we don't see all of the people that are being oppressed when we claim this frontier. We don't don't meet all of the people who've (laughs) been cleared off the planes and cleared off the planet or blasted into space. Or if we do, they have to be saved from themselves. Right. Or if it's the white man's burden. So, mm-hmm. you know, lucky for them that some white dude has come along to to save them from their terrible savagery. So the other thing is that these individuals, again, as Moorcock says, tend to be basically racist. Mm-hmm. And I mean, this has come up as a, a big question around Campbell himself in the science fiction community who made a lot of statements, direct statements that were Essentially saying, yes, white people are superior. Mm-hmm. And he was, that a, it was he was an old school racist. He was, yeah, he was very like mid-century racist, um, really believed in the separation of the races, really believed that like slavery had been a good thing and that indigenous people deserved to be mown over uh, because they were inferior. So and he's he's made these statements and we can link to it in our show notes. And so I think what ends up happening is that the rugged individual has a lot of baggage, mm-hmm. a lot of political baggage yes. that goes back to these 19th century ideas. And they also go back to this 19th century notion of Freud's that you can sort of have psychological problems that kind of have to do with personal development as opposed to political development. And one of the reasons why I love the work of Frantz Fanon, who was a Freudian psychiatrist, and he was working in Martinique, a French colony, and he was there during the sort of decolonization process. And he was examining people who came to him with psychological problems. My favorite story about Fanon is this guy comes to him and he's like, you know, I'm having horrible problems with violence and, you know, I have this urge to, like, beat my wife and I don't want to do that and I'm having nightmares. You know, what can I do? Please help me. And Fanon's like, all right, well, let me learn about you. What do you do for a living? And he says, well, I torture people. Basically, he's a prison guy. He's working in prisons. He's torturing insurrectionaries who are trying to protest the colonial rule of this nation. And Fanon just says, I'm just not going to treat you. Because the only thing that you can do to fix yourself is to stop being a torturer. Like literally there is nothing – you're not having a psychological problem. You're having a political problem that's manifesting itself in this psychological problem. And it's just – this is like one of 20 million reasons why if you like psychology, you should definitely go check out the work of Frantz Fanon. So I think – that's the thing that we forget in the story of the rugged individualist. You know, we think, oh, this poor man, he's having all these problems with violence. And gosh, he's trying so hard. He's going to see a psychiatrist. Like he's a, he's a good man. He's engaging in self-improvement like Foucault would enjoy. <laughs> um, but the problem is it's not, he does, it's not that he's neurotic. It's that he's a torturer. Yeah, that is so profound and that is that story just encapsulates so much. So then there's the other kind of individualist story, which I think is the dystopian narrative. There's usually one individual who realizes that there's something deeply wrong with their society, either that they're visiting a society that's that's messed up or more usually they're a product of this society, but they're the only ones who can see that their society is screwed up. And, you know, it goes from Brave New World, Brazil, Logan's Run, The Hunger Games, a lot of the classic dystopias 
are about like the lone individual who is at odds with this messed up world that they're in. And, you know, a lot of our most paranoid fantasies in some way pit the individual against an oppressive society. And this sort of extreme version of that is where, you know, individuals are up against some kind of collective that is like super coercive, like the Borg on Star Trek or the Cybermen in Doctor Who or, you know, a bunch of other things where people are being absorbed into some kind of collective against their will and having their individuality taken away. I guess Invasion of the Body Snap is another example of that. Yeah, that's like a really key early story in this kind of trope. And I think that it does grow directly out of thinking of individualism as American and Mm -hmm. thinking of these kinds of collectives as being communist, maybe thinking of them as Soviet or Chinese. And I think especially now as as our racism and xenophobia have evolved since the mid 20th century. We've come so far. We've now – I think these metaphors now when we see them, which we again see them all the time, it's much more about – China or Southeast Asia or maybe the Middle East, although that's not usually represented as like an evil collective. But it's it's still mm-hmm. the rugged individual, I can't emphasize enough, always seems to stand in for this kind of American identity, which is separated from its social context. So it's like free of all this baggage that we know it's carrying. We're outrunning it. We're we're just if we just keep running towards the frontier, we can We'll just stay one step ahead of all of our social baggage and just all of our – crushing all of the indigenous people <laughs> before us. Like, yeah, manifest destiny. I'm curious about this other side of the myth though because it feels like the individualism we were talking about before was very conservative and it was very paternalistic. Mm-hmm. And now we're talking about a rebellious kind of individualism that recognizes oppression. So – Does this other kind of individual that's fighting dystopia, do they also have a kind of baggage? Like is there something that they are blind to, like a social context that they're not seeing? I almost want to say that in some sense dystopia is a reaction to people rejecting the frontier ethos. Like I feel like you have this kind of like upbeat heroic cowboy ethos of like we're out there on the frontier. We're making things better. We're civilizing, blah, blah, blah. The rugged individual is is a force for good. And then – As people kind of push back against that and try to point out the people who are harmed or left behind or or kind of, you know, not included in that kind of rugged Western frontier ethos, the response is to have these dystopian stories about like you're trying to crush my individuality with your, you know, conformist, you know – participation trophy culture and like I think that it is kind of a backlash against the response to the frontier ethos. So there's a a conservative strand in those dystopian stories as well. Oh, for sure. I mean, you know, one of the things that you see in a lot of dystopian stories is that creativity is is suppressed or, you know, that people aren't allowed to have like the full range of expression. Emotions are banned like in The Giver and Equilibrium and a bunch of other things. Free speech is banned. Yeah, and often it is this kind of fantasy about the state overreaching. It kind of gets back to Ayn Rand a little bit. Oh, for sure. And the state is overreaching. And like most dystopias are kind of by their very nature statist. They are – they're totalitarian, but they're also just like the state is trying to control everything. And it's rare to find a a dystopia where the locus of, of oppression is not 
coming from the government. Well, except once you start seeing cyberpunk in the 1980s, mm-hmm. then you see a strand of corporate dystopias. Yeah. And I think those – this could be a whole other podcast, you know, the, the the strands of dystopia. But I do think that you still see the rugged individual in a lot of those – Especially do. in the 80s cyberpunk stuff. And that was because they were playing with film noir tropes and they were right. playing with Western tropes. I mean they explicitly evoke them. And so – I think people like William Gibson and Rudy Rucker and, you know, other folks who were writing, like Pat Cadigan, who were writing cyberpunk were a lot more self-conscious about what they were doing and were critiquing that idea a lot and also try to show, especially I think in Gibson and Cadigan's work, we see a lot of evoking of the communities around these people. And so it isn't just an individual. There's always a bunch of different POVs and we kind of see how people kind of work together. At the same time, they're in this tradition of of kind of looking at the frontier. And instead of the frontier being space, it's cyberspace. <laughs> cyberspace. Which brings us to Something that I've been really excited to talk about, which is technology and how real-life technology is shaped by these science fictional tropes about rugged individualism, but also just the tropey tropes, the tropes that came from philosophy and from our relationship to the frontier in the United States. So let's take a break and talk about that. So, Annalie, how does this American kind of rugged individualist ethos shape how we develop technology? There's a lot of ways to answer that question, but I want to focus on just a couple of things, especially technologies that we use now that have been really influenced by science fiction that itself was influenced by all these ideas of individualism. So one thing that's really obvious is the mobile device, Mm -hmm. which you could call it a phone. You can call it a lot of different things. We have a lot of different mobile devices now. But I think there's a clear connection between Myths of the Frontier, Star Trek, the communicator, and the mobile device. And I think there's always been this kind of wish that we could have a device that would enhance us mentally somehow. Mm -hmm. And we've had lots of science fiction fantasizing about that. I think the development of mobile devices that are computers and also communications devices is so bound up with our idea of the individual being the unit of consumption, but also the individual as the unit of improvement. Because there's so many aspects now especially that we can see that mobile devices tie into self-help culture. You know, you can have an app that will help you meditate, Mm -hmm. that will help you remember when to walk. So many of our wearable devices are coming to market with their first application being health and quantified self stuff. So like I'm wearing a Fitbit right now, which is also a watch, but it's also a wearable device. It's also a tracker. It can let my phone know where I've been and how far I've walked. And eventually this Fitbit will probably do a lot more. In 10 years, if we continue with wearable devices, you know, this Fitbit might be basically a computer. But the way that they got me to buy it was it's tracking my steps. And Mm -hmm. I want to know how much I walk because I want to optimize. And I think there's a whole history, a whole alternate history that could be written 
about what would technology look like if we didn't develop it with those kinds of goals in mind, if we developed it with the idea that technology would be consumed by groups. You know, what would that look like? Maybe we wouldn't all have one device that we carry around with us. Uh, Maybe there'd be kiosks. Maybe we'd be sharing them. Maybe we would all have dumb devices that talked to a community server owned by our families or owned by our communities. It's really hard to say because these devices grow out of such a long tradition of never thinking outside that box of the individual that it's just how do you reconstruct that? And I think another technology that's obviously in the same genre is the car. Mm -hmm. And the car is really great for thinking about that alternate history because I think we're at a point in the development of the car where we're starting to turn toward imagining the car as something that's collectively owned. We're just on the cusp of it. I think the turn away from using cars and using fossil fuels toward improving public transit or at least improving our desire for public transit. Right. Or 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 self-driving cars that, you know, can be ridden by multiple people. Car shares. Yeah, over the course of a a particular afternoon or whatever. I'm curious, what do you imagine mobile devices would be like if they were developed to be used by communities as opposed to individuals? It's so hard to even imagine. I mean, as you were talking, I was thinking about like the thing with your Fitbit and some of the other stuff where it's all about like improving yourself. And it's like, what if you had mobile devices that reminded you to help other people? That were like, hey, this person is homeless. Why don't you try to help them get a home? Or, you know, this person is sick. Why don't you bring them some chicken soup or whatever? I mean, I think people would argue that those exist. Like they'd be like, oh, there's GoFundMe or there's, you know, right. things like that. But it's it, that's really different from a device that is physically designed from the get-go to be something that's communally oriented. Right. Like it's not just about an app. Like I almost feel like the, the GoFundMe app – and others like it are kind of the John Rawls of this scenario. It's like sort of like, ping, if you want to be a better person, give some money to this homeless person. You know, right. like it's not right, about right. like how do you remember what your community is like. It's just like you could be a bet, you could improve yourself. And I feel like, you know, a lot of what goes into uh, mobile devices and, and particularly the software in, you know, right now for mobile devices is about kind of maximizing your attention and trying to get your attention for as long as possible on on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, on various other apps. And part of how they do that is just to suck you in and kind of like appeal to your vanity and, you know, kind of take over your brain to some extent. And it's, it's, it's kind of in a way it has the result of isolating people. I feel like the weird thing about social media in 2019, 2020 is that we're being more isolated by it rather than brought together, which was always, I thought, the promise of social media. We're being more heavily individuated. Yeah. Um, And we are because we're being turned into data trails that can be packaged up and sold as little individual pieces of a giant marketing plan. The other thing I was going to say to finish up is the way that you know that a piece of technology is deeply within the tradition of rugged individualism is when it's creating a privacy problem. Yeah. Because as we've already been discussing, the notion of privacy kind of goes hand in hand with the idea of the individual. And so the fact that we have all these technologies that injure our privacy or that touch on privacy in some way, it's just another part of that baggage. You know, the individual carries this baggage of 
building a form of privacy build, that is also itself a kind of vulnerability. And I'm not saying that privacy is bad or that we shouldn't have invented it. I'm like super pro-privacy, but it's also it makes people vulnerable because privacy becomes this thing that you're constantly having to protect because there's this unit of self that's the individual. Not to get like too kind of galaxy brain about it. <laughs> no, but it's the dark side. It is the dark side of the kind of like my device is enhancing me as an individual. The the the, the flip side of that is my device is impinging on me as an individual. That's right. And I think it's that the that's, dystopia. That is the dystopia. Thank you so much for listening to Our Opinions Are Correct. We really appreciate your support. If you want to support us some more, we have a Patreon at patreon.com slash ouropinionsarecorrect. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Twitter as OOACpod and on Facebook as Our Opinions Are Correct. And you can listen to us wherever podcasts are available or even some places where podcasts are not available if you're really good at hacking. Uh, we're on Libsyn. We're on Stitcher. We're on Google Play Podcasts and Apple Podcasts. Please, please, please leave us a review if you like our podcast. Please tell your friends. And thank you so much to our incredible, heroic, valiant producer, Veronica Simonetti with Women's Audio Mission. Thanks to Chris Palmer for giving us this amazing music. And thanks again to all of you who listened to us. And we'll be back in two weeks with more outlandish ideas. Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>